This music you're listening to right now, we recorded in Bologna at Basilica San Petronio, who has the world's oldest pipe organ still in use today. Bellissima, see? We'll get back to that later in the episode, but for right now, welcome back to Kimberly's Italy. Benvenuti to Kimberly's Italy. My name's Kimberly Holcomb, and I am here with, as everyone knows, world-famous Tommaso. Yes, who's now a roadie, actually. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get into that as well. We were recording on the road. I'm a roadie. That's right. I had said we need a third carry-on luggage to hold all of our cables for our on-the-road recording studio. Yeah, I've got a call into Mick Jagger to see who's available. Oh, (laughs) jeez. Don't hold your breath. (laughs) We are recording this episode back home. We're back home in little Rhode Island, and we're recording our first episode of 2023 in our studio. The last two episodes were recorded in surroundings a bit more historic than our studio that we're in right now. Episode 77, we recorded an ancient yet somewhat humble palazzo on Lake Como. And episode 78 was recorded in the history-filled Grand Hotel in Milan. In a suite, actually, that's right down the hall from where the famous composer Giuseppe Verde lived for the last 20 years of his life. And also, that was where the first external recording outside of London on gramophone was recorded with the famous opera star Caruso. Isn't that awesome? In the same hotel. I, I, I know we're the fir- for first podcast in there. I bet you we are. I bet you we are too, because they would have said something. The manager would have said something to us. You never know who what people do in their suites on their own, though. <laughs> I guarantee you. I guarantee you. <laughs> we'll get I'll into- bet you a dollar. Okay. I'll bet you a euro. <laughs> we'll get into that in a further episode when we talk about the Grand Hotel A de Milan in a couple episodes from now. I would like to mention, however, that the sound quality of both those past two episodes may be a teeny bit inferior compared to this fabulous studio that Tommaso painstakingly has put together. But it was fun to record on the road. It was fun. And, you know, it was our first time and we learned a lot. Um, I can make it better the next time. And there will be many next times because we had a great time. It was really fun to be there in the moment recording. It was. And I will say the funny part was, like I just mentioned, recorded in this Palazzo in Milan and the second episode in the suite in the Grand Hotel. But where we edited, (laughs) well, I shouldn't say we, where Tommaso edited is a whole different story. The second episode that was recorded in Milano, you started during a layover we had in the Munich airport. Yes. That had a very comfortable airport lounge. I was editing while Kimberly went and got us a couple of Johnny Walker Reds. Yes. <laughs> that was free. That's the beauty of airport lounges. That's true. And he finished editing that episode in Copenhagen. We had to spend the night in a hotel because we got in so late. And this hotel, actually, I'm going to give a shout out to it. The Scandic Strand Park by the Copenhagen airport was fabulous. New, contemporary, design at its best, everything recycled from the sea. Super. And we had a fantastic tour with the manager and he talked about the sea glass, the the, um, wood pilings, the the 
the fishermen's nets, everything that was had been made recycled in, into, into something else. The, the entire carpeting of the whole hotel was made from recycled fishing nets. Yep. The place was awesome. And we had a nice room and he finished recording there. So we'll get, we'll get that's why I referred to you as a roadie. A roadie. We'll get our shtick down. But it was fun and I think we did a good job. I did feel quite at home while editing that because it was blowing a hoolie out there for all of our listeners in Australia. You know what a hoolie is. It was blowing a hoolie off the Baltic Sea. And man, this place was quiet. Yes, it was. And it was awesome to see because we were on a high floor. It was it was great. All right. Before we take you back to our few inspiring days in Bologna, I'd like to say that I'm so humbled by these new reviews we received in the last week or so on Apple Podcast. A person named Tahavian said he laughs out loud, which is, I think, like one of the best compliments you can get as far as I'm concerned. And I'm also very happy to hear that people are getting enough useful information from our episodes that allows them to help plan their own trip. And then there's whomever Cookie Genius is. Cookie Genius. I <laughs> want to know who that person I is. I know, right? Send us some recipes. <laughs> who said that each episode is like taking a little vacation. And all the other feedback and compliments are so very much appreciated. It's truly like a little motivational boost for me to know you took the time to write these. So, grazie mille. Alrighty, now back to Bologna. Day two, and what a morning it was, thanks to an octogenarian named Giorgio. So we woke up in our old medieval, well, I'm not sure medieval, but very old palazzo building that had this long internal circular stair. I put a little video up on it on Instagram. It had 130 stone steps. I kept counting each time. I never really came up with 130 each time, so I averaged it. <laughs> because remember in Rome, the Spanish steps have 144. Mm-hmm. This was about 130, much easier going down and beautiful because of the long circular shape, kind of an oval circular. It was great. We left there and went to a patisseria down the street in Piazza Santo Stefano, where we stayed. Tommaso took a table outside under one of the arcades, one of the millions of arches in Bologna, and I went inside to the casa where you pay for your whatever you're going to order. As I've mentioned, that's how you do it. You get you pay, you get your receipt, you go wait in line at the barista at the coffee bar. So there was a short little line and this older gentleman was in front of me and you could see him kind of getting a little antsy because the older woman in front of him could not make up her mind about the 20 or 30 different pastries that she needed for the next few days. Just order one of everything. She didn't do that. She had too much thought into it. She's got the grandchildren coming and some of them didn't like pistachio. The others were allergic to chocolate. Like I heard this whole conversation going on. Not a good idea when I need a cappuccino at 8.15 in the morning. Well, that's what happens when you go to a little small space. You have to wait in the line and I did. And the gentleman in front of me was getting antsy. And then finally, she went off to the side to look at more or the person, you know, that was taking her order pulled her away, noticing the line behind. So this man in front of me orders his one cafe, an espresso. That's it. I ordered the two cappuccinos, a brioche for Tommaso, then walked to the bar. All of a sudden, the barista had eye contact. I said, 
due capucci, due cappuccini, per favore. And then I realized, oh, that gentleman was in front of me. I just was a annoying American and just bursted out my order. <laughs> so I looked at him. I said, Signore, mi dispiace tantissimo. Le era primo. I'm very sorry you were ahead of me. And he looked back at me and he said, Da dove viene quella accento? <laughs> Meaning, where does that accent come from? I was like, <laughs> America. <laughs> Chicago. And then a few more words in Italian. And he said, oh, I thought you were from maybe... Sicilia, South, somewhere. That was a weird accent. I was like, it's a Chicago accent trying to speak Italian <laughs> as the best I can. And with that, while he then ordered his espresso, we had a quick chat and I said, why is your English so good? He said, well, many, many, many years ago, I went to university at Cornell. And I was about to say, oh, what an excellent school. And he goes, and I'm still cold thinking about it. <laughs> like everything about it, but the weather. Worst experience of my <laughs> life. I was like, wow, <laughs> it is pretty brutal up there. But and and Bologna is more moderate climate. Anyway, that's his first response about his university in Cornell. And with that, he said, but then I went on to teach at NYU, I think, for a while. And of all things, here he is, a Bolognese teaching South American politics and studies. Right. And he was also a big fan of jazz. Hold on. You're jumping ahead. So I said, okay, well, when you finish your espresso, because I got my cappuccino, come outside. I'll be sitting with my husband who would love to meet you. Okay. So he did. He came out. He stood there as dapper himself. And we started talking. And it was awesome. He told us about living in England. He was actually like an au pair at one point, correct? Yes, for a young English boy for a very aristocratic family. And then he broke into the most amazing aristocratic British accent. It sounded like King Charles was standing next to you. Right. It was really, really was spot weird. on. Yes. He, he told us the story that he was in charge of this young boy named Robert who he apparently called Roberto or would not. And then that's when he imitated the accent. Robert, he called him. Yeah, he was great. So that was part of his previous young life. And then he went on to university in Cornell. And then he lived in New York City. And then he spoke about his love of jazz and how that took him to Newport. To Newport, Rhode Island, the next island over from where we live, because he went to the jazz festival in, must have been the 70s. Anyway, he had been to Chicago, all over the United States, following jazz and teaching here and there. And then he told us that he decided to go home to Bologna. And then I told him the story of how Bologna was the very first place I had my first step in Italy. And it has such a place in my heart and how much I love the university that I was going to show Tommaso after our coffee, etc. And then I told him, well, one of the real reasons we're here in Bologna is that Tommaso can eat ragu. And with that, he just smiled. And then he said, where'd you go last night? So we told him about the restaurant we mentioned in the previous episode. He didn't know of it, but he told us, you need to go down the street here. Three or four streets down on the left or the right. I can't remember. I don't know what and, the, I, and I don't remember the name, name. <laughs> but it's there. And if you find it, you will have the real thing. It's like, all right, we'll find it. 
And then finally, he said one parting word. He's, you know, enjoy my hometown. It's a beautiful city. I love the architecture. I love our, I'm so proud of the university and the history, but I'll tell you what I'm upset about. And, you know, we were waiting with bated breath. What, what upsets him now about Bologna coming back full circle to where he grew up? He said, there's so many restaurants here, just like in the other largest tourist cities that are open all day, just to serve tourists. And then he went on this, you know, kind of soliloquy about how, listen, Italian cuisine is part of our heritage. It's a pride. It's a, it's a thing we pass down from generation to generation. Every family makes the same recipe. All the food's organic. We take such pride in this. And the fact that some restaurants are going to stay open all day so you can eat at any time. It's just, non è giusto, è sbagliato. <laughs> he was so upset. He's just saying it's wrong. It's just not right because we have rules, which they do. Those unspoken rules of no dairy in your coffee afternoon. Well, it's supposed to be no after Parmigiano 11. No fish. Eggs, no Parmigiano on a pasta that has any kind of fish. Sorry. Right? They have these unspoken rules. And then one of them is about the time that you eat lunch, 1230 to 230, a basta, dinner, 830, they open early for tourists, to 1030, 11, basta, nothing in between. Their breakfast is what he just had, one shot of espresso, <laughs> right? And in the old days, he probably had 20 cigarettes. But he was so insistent upon this. And he said, you know, it's just wrong, like he said. Non è giusto. It's just wrong that it's open. Restaurants are open all day because it's not special anymore. So there you have it. We said our goodbyes. We actually gave him a business card of Kimberly's Italy podcast. So if you're listening, Giorgio. Yes. Well, he he's never listened to one, but he has a nephew or someone that could show him how to do it. So, yes, if you are listening, Giorgio. Ti saluto. We, vi, noi saluto. We say hello to you and I really appreciate the time we spent with you. You're quite the gentleman. And here's a lesson learned from that for everyone who doesn't speak the slightest bit of Italian, <clears throat> like me. <laughs> Learn a little bit of Italian because once you engage, most of, most of people in the urban areas of Italy speak English. Mm-hmm. But once you engage with them in Italian, they'll quickly switch to English. Because they want to. Because they want to. They want to practice their English. And they want to meet you. And they want to. And it was really, you know, it was one of those serendipitous moments that ended up turning into a very, very, very special time, which we'll get into in a future episode. All righty. So we jumped ahead a little bit, but after we said our goodbye to Giorgio, dapper Giorgio, I took Tommaso to the Basilica of San Petronio in Piazza Maggiore. And we had walked through Piazza Maggiore on the way home the previous night from the dinner where Tommaso had his first ragu and I had a large bowl of ravioli that I was full. So we walked and walked and walked. And as we walked toward Piazza Maggiore, I said to him, this is the side, this is the east side, the length of this basilica. And you said, Madonna, it's so long. It's so large. I said, I know. Wait till you see inside. So then you probably forgot about that. We had our coffee with Giorgio. And then we walked in. And this is the same basilica that we mentioned earlier that has only the bottom half covered in the marble facade, a white and red coral color facade. The top half totally unfinished. The 
old, worn bricks. It just was never finished. And as I've mentioned before, I love that Italians have saved that for historical record. This was part of the history. They ran out of the budget. Whatever happened, they left it as is. I think it's amazing. So when we walked in, I didn't say anything other than, okay, let's go. We walked in and I could just tell peripherally, I could just see your body kind of stop and take it in. And you were gobsmacked. I was blown away. It was just so huge and so majestic. I'm not one, as we all know, church lady runs in, I hang out outside. If I smoked, (laughs) I'd have a cigarette. I don't smoke. (laughs) I just hang out outside and watch people. And man, this church just blew me away. It's monumental. And so you feel that, I think, visually. You walk in, you see it, you feel it. You're like impressed. Yeah. There, you cannot help but be completely taken back at the... The scale. The, the scale. scale. You sit there and you think... How, how they do it. How did they build this thing with like lashings for scaffolding like a long time ago? There must have been one... Without, exactly. Without even thinking about it. In that first few seconds, in those first few seconds, you're so impressed with everything that just went through your brain. How'd they build this? This is so old. This is so impressive. It's so beautiful. And you don't even take a step. You're just standing there going, Dio mio, right? And it is old. It was begun in 1390, and its initial plan was supposed to be larger than St. Peter's in Rome. But as usual... Things happened, budgets were cut. A couple of wars. Yes, popes designated money elsewhere. And in the end, even the facade was not finished, as I've just said. So inside this beautiful behemoth, as I call it, is the original organ, pipe organ, I should say, built in 1470 by Lorenzo da Prato. It is the oldest pipe organ still in use today in the entire world. And even though I'm not religious and I don't particularly go into churches that much, I have a place in my heart for pipe organs. You do? Yes. Be- Why? Because when I was young, I was in a, oh, right. a Catholic choir in a cathedral in Worcester, Massachusetts called the St. Paul's Cathedral Choir. And just that sound makes me feel very calm. Well, that's lovely. That's why I guess we sat down. And, and I whipped up my recorder. Tommaso had his backpack with some recording equipment and he just you know, kind of discreetly pulled out this recorder and we were sitting behind the organ player. Now, let me just describe him. Here we are in this, well, I I should say it's not really majestic as much as massive and impressive. How many, just go back and tell people how many of the little chapels are around, what what are they called? Around the edges? 22 of them, individual chapels, all decorated by different artists. So that makes up the length and the mass of this basilica. So we sat behind the organ player and Tommaso brought out his recorder, as I just said, and I just took it in. And then I started looking at the organ player because I was looking at the pipes and thinking, this is very, very impressive. And then I looked at him and I thought, he looks like a street musician that just walked in, had his outdoor coats on. He had a beanie hat on, some kind of beat up sneakers. And I thought the juxtaposition of his outfit in this place playing the world's oldest pipe organ kind of threw me for a loop. But then I started watching him and he was so into it. Every 
limb on his body. Everything was moving. Well, that's because in a pipe organ, you play a lot of, there's a whole range of foot pedals. Okay. So well, your his you're legs in, were moving, feet were moving, his arms, yes, his shoulders. You got different different things on the left and right as you go along. You change the key. Yeah, it was very very impressive. It was kind of like this goosebump type experience. It was. It right? was. Yeah. We sat there for a very long we sat time. Sat there for 20, 30 minutes. It was awesome. I won't play all the music for you though. Okay. All right, a few more cool facts about this church is that it's the sixth largest church basilica in Europe. And funny enough, it wasn't even consecrated as a church until 1954, this century, because it was originally built as a civic temple, a place for public functions, just like all the forums and whatnot in Rome. And obviously what a grand civic temple it was. And as we mentioned in a previous episode on Bologna, this basilica also houses the longest indoor meridian line in the world. Yet another title, another world record holder. <laughs> it was designed by Cassini in 1656, and he happened to be a professor of astronomy at the University of Bologna, which is also a record holder, world record holder. And that university is right next door. The day that we were there, it wasn't sunny, unfortunately, because if it was at some point of the day, you'd be able to see the sun's rays come in through the little hole that Cassini designed in the vault above 27 meters, which is 88 and a half feet above the floor of the church. And it falls precisely on the line. And from there, the whole meridian calendar, celestial calendar, the specifics of that, I don't know, but <laughs> I should have, I, sh I should be a little more well-versed in that. I'm not. But visually, I was super impressed. I was actually blown away by the Meridian line. They have the entire line. So let's say you're walking into the church. So the nave on the left, the entire line goes on an angle from almost the front door way to the back far northeast corner that would be. And they have the line marked off with this very regal red twirled rope. And that rope goes through these little gold hoops and all of that is supported by these wooden stands with these carved wood bases. The whole thing was beautiful just to keep people away from the Meridian line. It was almost it was almost like a testament to how amazing this Meridian line is, this scientific achievement was, and therefore they wanted to cause attention to it, but yet give it like the honor well, I also it's due. don't think they want people stepping on it too much over time. So it, 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 well, of course, that's the reason it's there. But my point is, it's not just some ugly roped off area. No. I mean, it was a beautiful, yes, it was. I'll show you the pictures because I was just blown away by it. I was there. I know, but you're not remembering <laughs> how like attractive it was. Anyway, that part just blew me away. And, at one section, in one little section of it, they have like a little wooden bridge that you can walk over. So you technically can walk over the line. And there weren't that many people in there. So I just walked over and walked back a couple of times. I thought it was cool. And I later read that the line of people waiting to walk over the Meridian line is ridiculous in the summer. Right. So another reason to go off season. But when you did it, you just thought of the history of what you were stepping over and that unbelievable astronomical scientific achievement 
And I want to step back just on comment on one thing you just said. We were there at Christmas time between Christmas and New Year's. So there were a lot of people who were on vacation from within Italy. It was all Italian. Yes. We didn't see many tourists. We didn't hear many tourists. The fact is, if you went at a time that is not a holiday off season, yes, there'd exactly. be even less people. Yes. But it's also nice to see all Italians taking and, in the history of sure. their country yep. as well. And besides, they're a religious country, so they're primarily in the churches and the restaurants. <laughs> primarily <laughs> the restaurants. That's another and the religion. Churches. That's another religion. And I just want to finish by saying before we left this incredible basilica, I also did another backbend type video in this massive church while filming the vaulted ceilings. And you can see in this video, I'll put it up later today, how my video kind of speeds up at the end because I kept she going. Was falling over. <laughs> well, it was so much longer than the, the Duomo <laughs> and Como and all the other ones I've done. I was like, whoa, my God, I don't know if I can keep going. I was worried about like bending over backwards and cracking my head on the 600 year old marble floor. <laughs> so I'll put that up. It's just remarkable. When we walked out of this architectural gem, we crossed the little sidewalk street right into the next one, directly to the left of the Basilica, the Archigenasio. We also mentioned this building in a previous episode, number 65, as a matter of fact, but this was Tommaso's first time there, and I assumed he would have the same reaction that I did when I first stepped foot in the Archigenasio on my first trip to Italy a million years ago. In 1861. Yes. <laughs> and you did, didn't you? I did. I absolutely did. How can, you, how can you not be affected? Exactly. It's so impressive and geometric and, and you feel all that sensory overload just walking into the courtyard. It's really, truly amazing for anyone that cares for architecture. Just walk in this courtyard and you'll be also like one of those stop in your track type moments. This building has stood there since 1562 and it has 30 arches in this courtyard with a double order of loggias, not to mention the relief sculptures and the thousands and thousands of coats of arms of all the professors, their families, and even some students. Decorative coats of arms everywhere. Each one is unique and colorful, and it just sucks you in. Visually, there's so much to look at, yet it's so uniformed and geometrically perfect. Truly one of my favorite favorite spaces. I think it's as it was in all of Bologna, as it is in all of Italy, but particularly Bologna, because I've been dying to go there for so long. The amount of people that have gone through there over time at the, at the oldest continuously operating university in the world is, is just stunning. And you look at all these things and think, you know, 1600, 1700, 1400, it is just astounding the amount of people when you walk up marble stairs. Yes. And they've got a deflection in the middle because they've been worn down. By millions and millions of people yeah, ahead of us. I know. I love that. I love that. This building, Archigenasio, was built to house the main classrooms of the university and the library, which is the most one of, I have, I have so many, but one of the most amazing interiors I've ever been in. And it's, there's just something about walking into that quiet, kind of intimate space that gives me tingles. I can't think of any other word. It's like a, this tingle that starts at the top of your head and goes down. And just like you said, it's a combination of realizing all the history in those books. 
who wrote that? This is what goes through my mind when I walk in that room. Who wrote these books? Who's read them? How many times have this page has been flipped through? How do you preserve them? Right? Air quality control? Right. I don't know. Right. But yeah. how many times they must have been reorganized in different rooms of this building? Oh, that'd be a job for you. Right? I'm so... <laughs> oh, my God. Good idea. I'll go apply for a summer internship. This room just amazes me. And like you just said, I think of all the millions of people that have been in that room prior to you. And most importantly, they are the same kind of like-minded people, I think. How many of your average tourists that wants to click off the top, the greatest fountain, this, that, and right. the other, how many walk into the oldest library in the world? Unless you have a love of books, education. History. History. So when we were in there, it's only three euro to go into the library and the anatomical theater, which I'll describe in a second. So when we walked into this library, there's this older gentleman. He's like the gatekeeper of the library. He was a portly type man as well. And he looks at your ticket. No words are spoken. It's a library after all. And we walked in. You're just like, oh my God. Anyway, finally we sat down and both of us just sitting in various chairs far apart from each other, just looking at everything, just absorbing it all. And then I noticed this couple came, come in. I'm not sure what language they were speaking, but you could tell they asked him a question, the gatekeeper, and then he pointed down to the right. They walked down there, wasn't that far. They looked in, whatever was there, 15 seconds, they turned around, walked back out the door. It's like, what did they look at that only took 15 seconds? How did they not look at this whole room? So I went over there and I do not remember seeing this from my day, the first time I was there so many years ago, nor the subsequent visits that I have been to the Archigenasio Library. I think this was the first time I've ever seen it. And it's a corridor that is has a big gate closing it off, but you can see through these kind of like iron bars. I mean, it's a decorative gate, locked, so you cannot enter it. And it's a corridor that runs from where you're standing to the other end of the building that is so far away. It's so long, this building. And every, I don't know, 18 feet or so was on either side of the corridor, big, heavy, dark brown or black wooden bookcases. Well, they were tighter than 18 feet. Okay. But they were, they were, it was long and massive and the perspective that you could see down that. Way. Exactly. Was and it was like an optical illusion, like the old railroad track yes, concept. Yes, yes, yes. And I just stared at it and I couldn't believe it. I was like, how have I never seen this? Then you start to notice all the paintings, more decorative coats of arms, gold gilded frames of around portraits of various professors and scholars, historians. It just took my breath away. So I mentioned to Tom, you know, flailed my hands, come over here, look at this. And the two of us stood there for like 10 minutes going, oh my. When we finally left, well, before we left that spot, I thought, how in the world did that couple come here, look at this for 15 seconds and walk out and that was it? I know. What's wrong with them? (laughs) What's wrong with them? Right? It was one of the greatest things I've ever seen. And that, whatever, they probably saw it on an Instagram post, like, go here, see this, it's cool. So we stayed in that library room and stared at that corridor for quite a while and it was just fantastic. One of those... 
experiences that you're not likely to forget no, anytime soon. No, and as someone who loves libraries, as we've talked about before, it was just another magic moment. And I hope to go back there, not only to have a lot of bolognese in the future, <laughs> but to go back there and sit there again, because the second time there and the third time at a place, you, mm -hmm. you're not overwhelmed so much. You can actually absorb some of the, the, the nuance of it. Mm -hmm. And I, I hope to get back there. Well, there are 850,000 volumes. There's 8,500 manuscripts. There's so much in this library. So yes, worth many visits. From there, from the library, we walk down the hall to the anatomical theater or the cadaver classroom, as I call it. And it actually built around the same time. Obviously, the building is from 1560, so it was built at the same time, but clearly by another uh, interior designer. The whole concept was completely different. Every inch of this large, large anatomical theater classroom was made of wood, like a honey-colored wood. The ceilings, the walls, the pews, it almost felt church-like. Yes, it, oh, yes. And like, a, not that I've ever been in a medical classroom, you know, like in med school or anything like that, but it is what you've all seen pictures of or on in movies. It was probably, you know, what set the standards for how medical students learn today. This big round theater environment. And in this case, it was one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. All this carved wood, beautiful Use the frames and everything just brilliantly done and completely different from the rest of the building. The only thing that was not wood was the slab yes. of white marble where that cadaver, cadavers, must have laid. And I kept looking at thinking it's very white. And is it Carrara marble or is it a replacement? Because there's no way it could be that white after 600 years of Cor dead. Corian. Yeah. <laughs> Like in a kitchen. Like in a kitchen. <laughs> no, I, I think I think you know when they were doing that, they basically bled the body out. You didn't have a lot of blood beforehand. Beforehand. Okay. Well, anyway, when we sat in one of the pews and started really looking at all the sculptures, they also had decorative sculptures and busts of scholars and physicians, etc. When I really started looking at it, and keep in mind, everything was made from wood, all the sculptures, all the busts, everything. And I realized this is all rather grotesque. <laughs> For example, there were two life-size male sculptures at one end of this theater, and they were carved from wood, but you could totally tell they were skinned. You could see the musculature, you could see their spines, every single thing, like tendons, everything. It was gruesome and all carved in marble. And they were, they were carved in wood. Uh, um, excuse me. They were carved in wood. And these two sculptures were holding up like the tablet, whatnot, above that physician's lectern where he guided the dissection and all the stuff that goes on in those things. I just... Um, for someone who's a vegetarian, it was probably a difficult moment for you. 
It wouldn't be enjoyable for anyone <laughs> except a med student or a doctor. I mean, it was creepy, but I was in awe of the interior. It was just beautiful. And the life-size sculptures that I was describing, they are of famous physicians. And one was holding a scroll of probably some medical record that he... A manuscript of a, a medical book or something that exactly. he was working on. Exactly. And then all these other physicians. So I was looking at my pictures today and I kept zooming into one of them had his hand out and there was something in it and I couldn't see from my the photo on my phone. You weren't allowed to have big cameras in there. No flash, etc. So I Googled it naturally. And guess who it was? A sculpture of Gaspare Taglio Cozzi. That's who who exactly who I thought it was going to be. <laughs> Of course. Gaspari Tagliacozzi, who basically invented rhinoplasty, which is... A nose job. A nose job. Guess what he had in his hand in the sculpture? A nose. Isn't that funny? (laughs) I'll show you that later. When I was sitting there, as we do in all these places, we sit and sort of take our time. And I love to sit and just think about how many people have sat there before over the centuries. But I kept thinking about summer in Bologna or spring and the smell from a cadaver being cut open oh, in the, the 1500s. Yeah. Yeah. Pre, you know, pre refrigeration where the body hadn't even been refrigerated Yes, and there's no AC. There were only a few small windows in that room. If you think about it, yep. long, tall windows with lead uh, separations. Yeah. That would be um, unpleasant class. Well, you don't know. You don't know. We don't know what they did. I mean, apparently back when they embalmed people back in the old days, they used various spices and, and, and herbs to basically reduce the scent. Oh, clever. <laughs> well, in summary, is this anatomical theater worth a visit? Certo. Most definitely. It's actually unforgettable. I, I would put it that way. Yep. From there, after seeing that quasi gruesome, but beautiful I was interior. I, what else is new? We literally walked out of the Arcangelasio and I was about to say, would you like to go toward the other Duomo or something? And he goes, I'm hungry. I'm in Bologna. I was like, oh, Dio mio. So guess where we went? To lunch. However, it was such an awesome lunch experience because it wasn't really a restaurant. We didn't think at first. It was more of a slumeria with Dogs everywhere, like the luckiest dogs you've ever seen in your life, getting little tidbits of brosallo and prosciutto and mortadella. It was so awesome. And then I happened to look upstairs and I saw a couple people's heads sitting in this like top balcony area having lunch. And it was late ish, you know, almost two thirty. So I said, "Ciao, tavola per due." Is there a table for two? He goes, "Last one." They were closing. I'm like, "We'll take it." <laughs> and it was. Fantastic. And I will say quickly, and then we'll stop and get into it later. You said it was the best ragu of your trip. Well, I'd only had two. And bolognese is like art. You can, there are two different types of art. They're both beautiful. You can appreciate each one differently, but they're all wonderful. And it's the same with bolognese. And that lunch was up until that point. A masterpiece. A masterpiece. I had had one the night before. That was a masterpiece too, in a different way. (laughs) All right. Shall we carry on no, next episode? Go. Yes. No, let's go. Carry on next I'm episode. <laughs> no. Basta. We will carry on the next episode back in Bologna. Then we go on to Luca. We have so much more to tell you about. It was an awesome trip and we'll share all of it. 
Va bene? Va bene. Okay, grazie mille tutti. Speak to you next week. And enjoy the organ music for another minute. Ciao, ciao. Ciao, ciao.